Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So hello there guys and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope that you guys are doing well and staying safe more importantly. It's the end of the F1 season and a lot of you might be wondering what you're going to be doing with yourselves, how you're going to fill your time now that the F1 season has come to a finale last weekend at Abu Dhabi. And that's a fairly legitimate question, if I'm perfectly honest. I mean, there's going to be a lot of F1 fans wondering how they're going to fill this void that their favourite turbocharged V6 supercars are, you know, not going to be around to entertain us on a regular basis. I mean, there's the World Cup that's going on in Qatar. And that, of course, has its own controversial issues going on and discussion points, many of which have been apparent in the F1 uh, discussions this season. Of course, we're not going to be talking about those in particular for this episode. But of course, one thing that you guys can turn to is F1 podcasters, hopefully us, and by tuning into our show that you would agree that perhaps we are doing a good enough job for you guys. I certainly hope so. And we just wanted to let you know, of course, that we're going to be here producing plenty of F1 related content in the form of podcasts for you guys over the winter break to help ease the burden that this new void without F1 cars has now created, whilst it's almost 100 days until lights go out at the Bahrain Grand Prix in March, which is a very depressing number. I think you'll all agree. But of course, we'll be right there with you and hopefully we can ease that burden and make the time go a little bit faster. And just a quick reminder, for those of you new to the channel, don't know who we are. We are the independent F1 podcast made by the fans and for the fans as we bring you reviews, previews and all of the latest news, gossip and events in the world of Formula One for your listening and viewing pleasure. So make sure to hit that subscribe button and like the video if you're watching this on YouTube. And of course, if you follow us on your favorite podcasting platforms, don't forget to give us a five-star review and we'll give you a shout out in the next episode as our way of saying thanks. Joining me on this episode, the first 
post-season episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast for 2022. We have Lee Wallington, our beloved DNF1 panel member. Lee, first of all, how are you and how are you coping now with the void growing ever so largely of no F1 cars running around our favourite circuits until March next year? I'm doing great, thank you for asking, Adam. Um, I, I just deal with the void the same way I do every year. It's when I really focus on my Formula 1 games, um, and be it the current one in uh, Formula 1 22 or F1 manager, it's just like, you have to get some Formula 1. It's very different if it's me doing the racing myself on, on a game it's the only way I get I get my fix along with the, doing this podcast to get through uh, the winter break until we get going in Australia next year yeah that's true I mean what are you playing at the moment is it F1 Manager or F1 22 because I mean they're both good games but they own they have their own merits of course um, at the moment it's the F1 Manager um, I've had a go at that um, not doing too well at the moment <laughs> <laughs> it's a good game though I mean are you in your first season yeah, I'm in my first season. I'm spending more than I should. Who are you managing? Uh, I went with McLaren. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm you spending should... more money than I should. So it's uh, not been a great start. I may have to restart. How upgraded? <laughs> learning the, how learning up... the game at the moment. How upgraded is your helipad? I think a lot of people will probably be wondering. Uh, not that upgraded. Oh, that's got to be the first thing you fully upgrade, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like that's the one thing people upgrade to the max straight away. I don't know what it's meant to do. It's meant to make you more marketable, I suppose. But... Um, McLaren are the sort of team that try and fit as many sponsors on the car as humanly possible. I know Zach Brown's a big part of that. So, uh, yeah, start upgrading that helipad in that boardroom, Lee. You might be all right. But, um, no, it's, it's a good game so far. I've not long started my first season because I've had to put it on the back burner a bit because I've been quite busy. Now that I've got a little bit of free time, I've been trying out a new series on F1 Manager with Aston Martin. Um, a lot of people have been going to the teams at the back end of the grid. So it was either them or Williams and I thought... I've seen a lot of people go for Williams, so I thought we'll get Aston Martin a try, see if I can get Seb Vettel back to the front where he belongs before, of course, he retires in the game, as he has done in real life. But um, I digress. Let us know, guys, if you play F1 manager. Let us know what team you're managing. Let us know how you're getting on. Um, I'm probably doing as well as Lee is at the moment. I'm still straggling at the back, but uh, it's a good game. It, It does take a while to make your way up the field. So I think it's certainly worth starting at the back. But of course, if you want to start with one of the better teams like Ferrari or Red Bull, for example, then you're more than welcome to. But uh, each challenge to their own. In this episode, we should start talking about, um, I wanted to go through some of the major talking points going on in the postseason, one of which is the postseason test in Abu Dhabi, where we saw a lot of young drivers making their first appearances as part of the young driver test, and some drivers making their first appearances for some of their new teams. Now, People aren't messing around. They want to get their new guys in the cars as soon as possible. And I think we've got as much as five new drivers in new cars off the top of my head. So it'll be interesting to talk about how they got on and see what kind of pictures that we can ascertain from their early experiences and how they went on. We're obviously going to be talking about the Chinese Grand Prix potentially being cancelled from the F1 Canada for next season and some personnel changes at the FIA, FIA, which may uh, provide a conspiracy theory or two so it might be fun to talk about a little bit later on but Lee first place I want to start the Abu Dhabi test in the postseason now this is something that we often have at the end of the season straight after the race usually on the Tuesday after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix the teams and drivers that are at this test will either do a young driver test where they allow drivers that have had less than two two Grand Prix or less experience in Formula One to go out 
do some running for their new teams. The obvious exception last year was Fernando Alonso, for example, uh, the oldest young driver that we saw in the paddock, but also an opportunity for some older drivers to do, take part in the tyre test and give themselves a rundown for some of their new teams. First of which was Fernando Alonso, a driver that I'm sure a lot of people were going to be very interested in his progress with Aston Martin and Fernando has shown no signs of little to no enthusiasm with his new team. If anything, but he's like a, a kid exciting on his first day at school, ready to get going, ready to meet everybody and ready to get down with the action. And uh, yeah, Fernando seemed to do OK. He was very buoyant. He was very excited from his new uh, from his new car. 12 fastest overall, 97 laps completed on the day. So a fairly good run. And um yeah, did you see, obviously, you know, we're quite limited on what we can actually see from this test, Lee, but uh, did you see any of the pictures of Fernando Alonso in the Aston Martin car? It was quite an interesting look on him this for this test. It was an unbranded car, I believe, wasn't it, The he was driving? Um, I'm not too sure on the reasons why that was. Um, well, it was mostly down to the fact that because he's still technically contracted to Alpine, until January the 1st, I believe, he had to do his test in, as you said, an unbranded Aston Martin car, nothing but his car number 14, uh, an Aston Martin logo on the front with a Pirelli logo as well, also on the front nose. They couldn't even have the Union Jack as part of the Aston Martin branding on the car. They had to get rid of that. And he also had to wear a camouflage helmet as well, like one of those black and white squiggly line ones as well because he's still contracted with Alpine technically until the end of the year so obviously he can't represent any of the Aston Martin brands he can't really represent Aston Martin the team even in the media or personnel or stuff like that so it was very much driving an unbranded car and I'll be honest with you mate I really really enjoyed it like there's something about a unbranded F1 car where you can see more of the colour, more of the curves and more of the aero pieces and stuff like that. Not that there are that many that stick out on the modern cars, but it's just something that looks really satisfying about it. Um, the, the, yeah, I get what you mean with the simplicity, and especially that Aston Martin green is just a... Without all the, the branding on it, it actually looks like a Aston Martin road car in that um, in the Aston Martin racing green. Um, so it, it did look um, pretty good in that aspect, and I'm sure... Fernando thoroughly enjoyed having his uh, first Mercedes engine in the hybrid era. And it was like, yes, an engine that doesn't break down on me. <laughs> this is great. I love it. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because they asked Fernando his thoughts on this. And um, of course, you know, the first time he's driving using Mercedes power unit in the turbo hybrid era, I think he's now only the second driver that has completed the quartet of driving with the Renault, Ferrari, Honda and Mercedes engine I think Kevin Magnussen is the only other driver that's done that in the turbo hybrid era so he's in a fairly exclusive club Fernando and they did ask him for comments actually on the new power unit he said that it was different and they asked him is it better than what he's had before and in typical Fernando being quite coy but slightly giving a slight dig to his former employees sort of shrugging his shoulders and smiling and uh, he looked like he really enjoyed himself honestly like I know we get this with Fernando a lot where if he goes to a new environment, he's always upbeat, he's always buoyant, he's always talking up and praising his new employers or the new people that he's working with. And then, of course, a few years down the line, if it doesn't work out, he's completely criticising them as if they were the worst thing ever and looking forward to the next step. But on this occasion, he really did look like he was enjoying himself. He could 
you know, there was a lot of things he was getting involved with. He was having the seat fitting. Um, I think I remember reading him saying that he was a bit sore on his left side. So, you know, obviously they'll need to adjust for that with the seat fitting. And the dash, the messages on the dashes were a little bit longer than what he was used to, which he thought was quite helpful. It's just getting used to those fine margins. Those sort of things that we often associate with Fernando, he's very good at extracting fine margins in terms of performance and the small details that make up a lot when you collate them all together. He was really getting involved in all of that and really seemed in a good mood. I mean, we talk about reliability, Lee. This is a guy that suffered seven retirements this season. Include, and they were all related to reliability slash water leak issues. And we must be honest, I, I was reviewing our 2022 season predictions video, uh, which of course we'll talk about next week when we do the season review. And one thing that we cited back then was Alpine's concerns about his reliability uh, during the winter break. And it really did hurt them a lot this season. Um, Fernando Alonso especially, not so much in the championship constructors wise, but as a driver, Fernando obviously really plagued by those reliability issues. Oh yeah, the Esteban just seemed to have the the rubber the green in that aspect and not have experience of reliability issues in the race. Um, but yeah, I'm sure Fernando look, we looks at the Mercedes power unit from this year across all the teams that run the Mercedes power unit and how many actually suffered reliability issues. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, but for example, Mercedes, um, the, the race manufacturer themselves. They only had their one um, power unit issue at the last race, and that is suspect, suspected because of the damage going over the cup. Um, so that like, they could have had a clean sweep as the race team. It was McLaren um, and Aston Martin Williams themselves. I'm not too sure actually on how many off the top of my head. But I don't think they had any, to be honest. I don't remember seeing any reliability issues of that kind for them. No. Um, I don't. I know um, they had a few obviously penalties for taking a few extra engines, especially like Lando Norris had a, um, a penalty at least once for taking new engine pieces. Um, but that's probably the best reliability as an engine across all four manufacturers. So I'm sure Fernando, even if he's not being racing where he's wanted, wanting to be next year, the fact that he has an engine that will last a race distance in the whole season will make him feel a, a, a lot more reassured that he should have made the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, whilst it's difficult to quantify where all of the engine manufacturers kind of stack up against each other, a lot of people are, seem to be of the impression that the, in terms of performance, there's no more than a tenth and a half between the best one and the worst one. When you add the reliability factor into it, you'd probably argue that the only one better than the Mercedes is the Honda engine when you consider the whole package. And even then, the advantage is very, very minuscule. I mean, it certainly didn't help Mercedes cause this year when all four of their cars were not very fast from the get-go. You know, the Mercedes was very, very draggy. McLaren, Aston Martin, Williams, they were all... Um, languishing at the back but of course their cars improved and you know that the power unit can only do so much to help them but in terms of performance the overall picture would suggest that it is a bit of an upgrade with all due respect to Alpine yeah I would agree with that that I think it is an upgrade but as you said it's not the it's not 2014 when we had massive differences between the engines they are a lot more closer on the, the parity on closer and being on parity than they we have in previous seasons yeah, 
I mean, I'd have to go back and remember, you know, on the topic of his high praise for his new employees and his new teams. I mean, he was the f- literally was as early as Sunday evening after the race where he was already going into the Aston Martin garage to sort of say hello to everyone and get acclimatised. And then he's in there first thing Monday morning saying all these wonderful things about his new team and his new employees, really excited about this process and project probably would have been even more excited about it after seeing Sebastian Vettel's performance at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix when he was, to a degree, outperforming Fernando for the majority of that race in a car that was seemingly inferior to what Fernando had left behind. So I think, you know, I I would love to go back and see what Fernando was saying about Alpine when he came back to Formula One again to drive that car. It was probably fairly similar to what he was saying about Aston Martin, but for some reason this time it really did seem like what he was saying and the exuberant emotion that he was expressing following this test is probably something that will be a lot more accurate to what he truly feels compared to just a regular PR stunt, just trying to say the right things to appease his new employers. Yeah, from the top of my head, I mean, I don't remember what he said during the Alpine, but how he's approached today or what he's been saying about his new employer reminds me a lot of how he was when he joined Ferrari. Um not that I expect Alpine, to, uh, not Alpine, Aston Martin, sorry, to be on the same level as Ferrari was when Fernando joined Ferrari. Um, but it's the same. It's, it's, it's just reminding me of how he joined Ferrari and his state of mind and his approach back then. Yeah, as long as they don't produce something along the lines of the 2014 T, which um, the only car that I can remember of its kind to have oversteer and understeer all at the same time. So uh, hopefully Fernando will not have to worry about that next season for Aston Martin. I think the quote that we can leave from this test from Fernando that really, really said it all was, when I signed for Aston, I was 90% happy. When they finished the season on a high, I was 100%. Now I'm 100 plus. So, I mean, the words speak for themselves. Fernando's obviously a very, very happy man. And uh, hopefully that happiness was not misplaced. We should talk about some of the other teams in testing. I mean, just a quick note on... Uh, some of the leading teams, Ferrari, they occupied the three fastest times of the session with Sainz, Leclerc and Robert Schwartzman having a go as part of the young driver's test. I think from that lead, we can probably take from testing that 2023 is going to be Ferrari dominant. We might as well just pack up and go home now. I mean, Ferrari finished the season on how they started the season, topping testing. Um, and we know how the year went. So <laughs> <laughs> take that into next year, I'm afraid. Oh, just let uh, this is how I cope. <laughs> like, got to end the season the right way, get the headlines. But I mean, look, we can use the old caveats when it comes to testing. And of course, these are with the current cars. It's not like it's new information or anything like yeah. that. Um, it's driving with the new tyres. Every team has their own programs. The tyre allocations are also separate from one driver to another. So even inside the, their own teams, there are going to be caveats that apply between two or three drivers in this case. I think there was as many as 24 drivers that took place in total for this test. So, you know, we joke and jest saying that Ferrari are going to end the season on top and 2023 is looking good for them. But obviously, it's just testing. And at the end of the season, it really doesn't matter. If anything, this matters even less than pre-season testing because it's literally just with the cars and we already know who had the fastest car at the end of the season. It certainly wasn't the Ferrari. So uh, I'm going to take the small victories whilst I can on that one. Um, Another driver that we should talk about, Lee, that uh, jumped into a new car, Pierre Gasly, replacing Fernando Alonso for 2023. Four fastest overall, 130 laps for the Alpine team. 
he was driving a regular Alpine car. It's fully branded up. Unlike Fernando Alonso, he was free from his Red Bull slash AlphaTauri contract straight away. So he was able to drive in the normal livery and the normal uh, Alpine crash helmet that would have been updated for them. I think he had to wear a neutral race suit, but I don't. I think that's just because he didn't have a Alpine suit available for him. Um, he was very positive as well, Lee. He talked up how good the car felt, especially with the front end. And that doesn't really surprise me because Pierre Gasly was really talking quite positively, almost like a person who felt a little bit reinvigorated after being in a competitive car, especially after he spent the year in the second worst car on the grid in the Alpha Tauri. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, the Alpine this year has been a mess, will be a massive step up compared to that Alpha Tauri he's driven. So I'm sure he would have loved driving a better car even in testing. And obviously the car he's been testing, I'm not saying it was Esteban's car, but now uh, being a French driver, another French driver in the team, the engines are, the, are going to be providing Esteban level of service, um, not not the uh, the Fernando level of service and the reliability that that provides. Got to have got to provide the French service for the French driver and all that. No, I'm just uh, I'm just I'm just jesting, <laughs> um, not accusing anything. Um, but no, it's definitely a step up, um, and he's going to obviously be going into next year. Going, yeah, this is the right choice. So I'm, apart from driving from a, a French manufacturer, is the the step up and getting closer to the front of the grid, which he wasn't going to get a chance with AlphaTauri. Yeah, and, and I thought it was quite interesting that he mentioned small little details like the improvements at the front end of the Alpine car. Like overall, there were certain facets of it that were definitely a big step up on what he'd been used to this year. And, um, I mean, it bodes well for him. He did say in the past that Alpha Tauri were going to completely overhaul the concept of their car for next season. So obviously they've acknowledged that what they did this year was incorrect. So, you know, in Gasly's mind, he's probably happy that he's gone somewhere else that have gone a completely different way already and a bit further along down the road than imagine what Alpha Tauri will probably produce next season anyway. So in terms of Pierre Gasly, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him next year because I think it's fair to suggest that despite the ailments of the car that he had to drive and the poor performances that it was capable of and collectively as the team as a whole we never really saw the real Pierre Gasly this season we saw a few moments where he was on it and looked a bit good but even then there were very small points so I'm supposed I guess we probably think that next season we should expect to see the more um, enthusiastic the more competitive Pierre Gasly that we enjoyed in 2020 and 2021 return for 2023. Yeah, I would have completely uh, imagine he's going to be back fighting. He knows as a as a team. Um, obviously, that that they, they can win races. Right, yes, Alfatari won race because he obviously won in Monza a couple of years ago himself. Um, but there's probably more of a pedigree as a racer, closer to a race winning team in um, Alpine than Alfatari. And uh, no offense intended to obviously and the the team at AlphaTauri, but being out front, closer to the front of the grid, he's going to be wearing for the challenge to be fighting up there. Obviously, Alpine's target is going to be getting to that P3 or closing the gap to P3. Um, be if that's fighting a Mercedes, a Red Bull, or a Ferrari, we find out next year. But he's going to be wearing for that challenge. Um, but the and also the challenge of going into Esteban's team, where he was the team leader at AlphaTauri. So that's a completely different dynamic once again. Yeah, and of course, you know, whilst we sh we joke about this, we shouldn't forget that Esteban Ocon, despite the obvious caveats this season for Fernando, 
did win that inter-team battle. So, you know, Gasly will be going into a team with a driver that I'm sure Alpine will be happy that he won that battle between the two and will be feeling pretty confident, you know, having beaten a two-time world champion with many Grand Prix victories that a young driver like Pierre Gasly trying to come in and potentially steal the spotlight for himself and become the leader in that team that he's already established for himself, it will not be an easy task for Gasly to overcome that. So it's going to be quite important for him that when he does come into this Alpine unit, now that he's free from, if you like, the shackles that the Red Bull program had put on him for many years now, that he just gets on and does the job that we know that he's capable of. We know he's a very quick driver. We know he's a driver that is a Grand Prix winner, like Esteban Ocon, of course. And he will need to deliver what we know he can do because I'm pretty sure Alpine will not be happy if they receive the Pierre Gasly from 2022. Uh, they're, they're, they're going to be completely basing it on... Obviously, he only could do your last drive. Um, but they... They could see that it was the second worst car in the grid and his performances from previous seasons. So it's probably banking very much on that. And also there is probably a bit of consideration of his nationality, where they did want another French driver, be that all French team. Um, and obviously yeah, win the championship for France. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the French are no strangers to success and world championships and uh Judging by the World Cup, they've obviously had a pretty good start right now. So uh, moving on to, as we mentioned, Alpha Tauri, let's talk about Nick DeVries. Now, Nick DeVries did a lot of laps, uh, 150, I believe, in total, more than any other driver. So that was very impressive from him. I think it's around 500 miles he covered on the circuit. That's a um, mightily impressive effort from him. Eight fastest overall. And um, I think I'm rightly, this is the fifth F1 car that he's driven this year. I'm just... Thinking the list, you've got obviously the Alpha Tauri that he drove on Tuesday, the Mercedes early in the season at the French Grand Prix, he drove the Aston Martin, the Williams at Monza, and a 2021 Alpine. I think that's all of them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, probably is. Yeah, that's the man that literally is the embodiment of the meme where you sign up with a new email account to get another free trial on a <laughs> subscription service. Nick DeVries is that guy, but uh. You know, a little bit older than some of the younger drivers coming through. 27 years of age, uh, or he will be soon. Formerly world champion, F2 champion. Plenty of experience, so not necessarily a regular young driver. But of course, not many Formula 1 outings. The most famous of which, in a very unique set of circumstances, came when he got a points finish at Monza this season when he deputised for Alex Albon. It's going to be interesting to see what Nick DeVries will be capable of next season. Um, as I said already, Gasly mentioned that Alpha are overhauling their car for next season. They're obviously not happy with the concept they went with this year. Hopefully it's going to be better for De Vries than it was for Gasly, especially given that De Vries is joining the second worst team on the grid. For a while, it did look like he was going to join the worst in Williams. So I suppose there's some level of optimism there. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, obviously he's an existing world champion, right? For a different uh, category at the moment, or say existing a uh, reigning world champion, I should say, for a different category. Um, so he, he definitely is a, a pedigree driver, well, with little experience in Formula One, but he knows many teams and how they operate. So that's a, a benefit in um, in itself, all that knowledge you can take from those different teams to Alpha Tauri. You know, Mercedes did this, Williams did that, Aston Martin did this, Alpine did that. I mean, it's a, that's a, a strength in itself. That's very um, true, yeah. So you can take that all, take all that knowledge 
And even from the Formula E aspect, Mercedes did this in Formula E. This is how we did this in Formula E. Uh, and uh, say that knowledge to um, Alfatori. So he, he comes as a, a very uh, knowledgeable driver and what he could bring to the team. And you have to think, he's going to be going to these circuits with all these fans that are going to be wearing orange. And it, it, Max won't be, be able to claim them all. They're going to be um, supporting the Dutch drivers. So... He's already got all the fans wait, waiting for him. Yeah, I think he's going to have to fight Lando Norris for those ones because I think Lando was trying to pick off the stragglers yeah, wearing orange. So uh, yeah. <laughs> saying they're out there supporting him and, and and they've grown to love Lando Norris as well. They made The Pit Stop Boys even made a song about Lando Norris. So uh, the famous group that made uh, the Supermax, uh, for those of you that are unsure who we're talking about. Um, it's going to be an interesting one for Nick DeVries. I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. This is a guy that I felt should have been in Formula 1 for you know for a little while obviously you know we mentioned his age he's not going to be up there with the young drivers he's older than Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc and George Russell for example if you want to sort of make comparisons and this is the thing you, you look at him and you look at his experience in the top end of motorsport you wouldn't think he was older than all of those guys so he is going to have to overcome uh, quite the disadvantage of not racing in F1 uh, for as many years as his counterparts have despite them being younger than him so I mean, are we, are we expecting much from Nick DeVries next season? Because, it, again, it's a team that he's going to be racing with Yuki Tsunoda. And we like Yuki, but as we cited before, this is a team that looks like it needs some leadership. And it's going to be hard to see where that's going to come from. Someone is going to have to step up, and that may well be Nick DeVries. Yeah, the I think it'll be very successful this year if he wins the inter-team battle with Yuki um, and, clearly, and then establishes himself as a team leader. Um, that will be a successful year for him, regardless of where he or the team finish in the championships next year. Yeah, very much so. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how that gets on. Um, whilst we were talking about Williams, we should uh, talk about Logan Sargent a little bit. He did some running in this Williams car. First time, uh, despite, uh, uh, he has been, yeah, has been confirmed as a Williams driver. So first yes. time as an official Williams driver, promoted into that seat, replacing um, replacing Nicholas Latifi, of course. Almost forget that one there. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he gets on. Um, it wasn't the most productive day for him on track, but um, that Williams was saying it was part of the run plan. That's what they wanted to do with him. Um, they weren't concerned about the physical elements of it. He was pushing the car a little bit more. It wasn't like he was driving it like it was an FP1 car where you could push it a relative amount. But the idea is not to damage the car for the guy that's actually driving it for the weekend that you're deputising for in FP1. And also, you know, worrying about racking up the super licence points. Obviously, that's not going to be a factor anymore. Um, Williams was saying that the run plan was him with him was to sort of ease him into the process of being a Formula 1 driver now that he's officially got that all done after his P4 finish in F2, increase the cognitive load they mentioned, which is, you know, simple stuff like learning to use the buttons on the steering wheel, playing with tools like diff changes and engine mappings and stuff like that as you're going around the circuit whilst pushing the car as well, rather than just what you do in an FP1 session mentioned earlier. So it's a lot that Logan Sargent is going to have to learn in a short amount of time. Williams obviously going to want to ease him into this. They're not going to want to overload him. But I suppose, Lee... This is a prime example of perhaps um, enlightening the F1 fan base of how difficult the step up from F2 is to Formula 1 because we've seen some other drivers that have been rather successful in Formula 2. The guy he replaced, Nicholas Latifi, was a, a runner-up in the F2 championship and you know we saw from his experience how difficult that, that can really be. 
Yeah, there's obviously a very big difference between the the two categories. Obviously, there that's been purposely designed to obviously make Formula One the pinnacle of the sport or motorsport. Um, but it's a massive step up, and obviously, doing it at this end of season test enables him behind those behind doors development. For me, I think the biggest thing that Logan's going to probably have a shock for, and I hope Williams really prepare him for, is the the media attention that he's going to probably experience next year three US races, being the American driver on the grid, the amount he's going to get the attention from the American media. Um, it's. I just really hope the the guy is prepared for that level of attention and it comes with it. And let, let alone think of what Netflix is going to do Drive to Survive with fo- probably focusing on an American driver for the first one in a few years, especially at the level of excitement that's uh, with Formula 1 now occurring in the US. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point because... You know, we can't underestimate the growth and the expansion that the US market has enjoyed owing to the Drive to Survive generation and F1's growing reputation and popularity in the US. You know, much so that we, as you mentioned, we've got free races next season. Miami was rather successful. That was added to 2022. We're going to have a Vegas race next year, which is obviously going to be targeted as one of those unique events that F1 are fronting up the costs for and everything else. So it's going to be a lot of pressure and a lot of attention and Logan Sargent to deliver there. Um, I mean, what are we expecting from Logan Sargent? Because, as as I said already, this is a guy that was relatively successful in F2, won a few races there, finished P4 in the championship. He's been successful in pretty much almost every junior category he's competed in since he got into go-karting. You couple that with also not being the first choice for Williams, as Oscar Piastri was meant to be the first choice, you know, on loan from Alpine for a couple of years. That was then followed up by Nick DeVries, probably going to be in that car until after his brilliant performance in Monza, which, you know, caught the eye of Alpha Tauri and Red Bull, for example, and they got him in. Um, Williams obviously never really mentioned how close they were to signing Nick DeVries, but I imagine it was relatively close until Alpha Tauri came calling. So, you know, obviously Logan was never the first choice. And of course, Mick Schumacher was also in the mix also for that seat. So... You know, compared to those drivers who are arguably a little bit more accomplished in him and more experienced, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him this season. I mean, how do you expect him to cope with all of that? Well, I think he needs to go. obviously go in there and obviously he needs to be aiming to be as close to Alex as possible. Um, obviously for him, if he can beat Alex, then that's great. But the he needs to be deliver a better performance than what... Uh, Nicholas was providing to Williams to prove that he was the he's an upgrade over the previous driver. Um, so that's where he's gonna have to be unfortunately looking back on this is the gap between Alex and Nicholas at this circuit. I need to be this, I need to be closer, I need to be beating Alex, I need to be um within parity or reaching distance, not half a second behind. I don't know, I'm not sure, I can't remember how far Nicholas was generally behind Alex, but there was some big disparity between the two and some qualifying sessions and race um actual race results so he's got a target he can work towards um and obviously focus on obviously i don't expect that out of the box but he needs to provide a, a better performance than uh, latifi has provided yeah i mean the guy's a solid race driver as we already mentioned he's not going to be he's certainly not a charity case and he's certainly not a guy that hasn't got there through his own merits you know he has earned this opportunity he has had to work hard for it he's now gotten it granted he is going to be on the back foot because of what he's going to have to learn 
up until pre-season testing. It may be one of those where he may need a few races before he beds in and we see what he's completely capable of. You know, we can't underestimate how big a jump this really is. Um, even some of the best drivers that have come through the junior categories, they do tend to struggle if they've not been able to get up to speed with the small facets and nuances of a Formula 1 car, especially a modern-day Formula 1 car where they can be quite tricky to drive, even for some of the best drivers. We, You mentioned, Lee, about the interest in the US uh, with a driver like Logan Sargent, free races on the calendar, the growing expansion of the US market in Formula 1 and its reputation. Do you reckon that's going to be a distraction for him, um, or do you reckon that's something he'll be able to cope with? Um, with it... If his head's not in the game and Williams don't train him and develop him properly, it could be a distraction um, and because obviously there's, it's one difference between the technical and difference between Formula 2 and Formula 1. But the level of media attention is going to be night and day between the two. And it's just there's no, there'll be no preparation uh between from in the lower categories about the media attention obviously there's some media attention you still see have um they still have tv crews etc but not to the kind of level that formula one would bring um so i really hope that williams are there to keep him um down to earth and not get overwhelmed by the attention and the media demand and the publicity and all the things that will come with being the first american driver in this growing Formula 1 popularity in the US. I really hope he doesn't get swallowed up. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it's... if I'm trying to remember this rightly. Is he the first US driver since Scott Speed? I believe so. I was yeah. just thinking that. I can only think of Scott Speed as the last US driver. Yeah, it was back um, in 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, with, with, uh, was Fittipaldi, Um Did he do a one race? Is Fittipaldi American or Canadian? Uh, yeah, or uh, he, I thought he was... I mean, I, I just yeah, assumed Brazilian because of the name, um, but... Yeah, I'm not too sure. I think we may have had one. Uh, no, I can't remember off the top of head. I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I mean, that's often the show as a premise, really. But uh, yeah, yeah. let us know in the comments, guys, um, if there was another American driver in that time. I mean, maybe there was one. I can't remember. And uh, I think this is what that's happened. That's it, Rossi. Alexander oh, Rossi. Alexander Rossi, yes. Yes, very, I had a quick Google, good. thank you. Was that in the um, <laughs> Sauber, wasn't it? Uh, Manor. Oh man, ah, fudge. Okay, I'm thinking of Fred Nazar. <laughs> or as a, in obviously Felipe Nazar, but uh, I think Crofty used to call him Fred in that season when they had him and Felipe Massa in the same uh, season competing against each other. That was a fun time from yesteryear. Um, let's move on to Oscar Piastri, seeing as we brought him up a little bit earlier. Now, this is the driver that I am most intrigued by in terms of his progress. You know, a, a young driver with a very, very big reputation created a huge bombshell after his announcement that Alpine promoting him was going to be against his wishes and all that old contract saga that went over the summer break and beyond that eventually led him to a McLaren seat. His preparation has obviously been massively hindered uh, to a degree where it's actually quite fortunate that Alpine allowed him to leave his contract early so that McLaren have at least six weeks before the 1st of January that they can prepare him for, before it all really starts getting underway. And um, obviously, you know, he was in full kit as well today. He didn't have to worry about branding or anything like that. He's now a McLaren driver as of Monday, I believe he was this week. So he's really been getting to grips with this 2022 McLaren. The first time he's driven a 2022 car in some time, he's been driving nothing but 2021 McLarens at this point in time because Alpine obviously didn't want him involved in any projects 
after that had all been sorted with the contract saga. What are your thoughts on him? Do you think this is a driver that is could possibly be on the back foot going into 2023? I think he's going to be on the back foot, unfortunately. Um, obviously, intentionally, Alpine have uh, starved him of track time, um, development time, exposure to the development plans for next year. So he's going to be probably cut, he's been cut off for half a year, effectively, from uh, Formula One and exposure to the, the Alpine team. So he's, he'll have exposure from Mondays. He'll be ca- catching up, but catching up is always behind. And he's going much going into Lando that Lando's team, um, and that's obviously Lando's established himself as the number one over Daniel, and now obviously Daniel's now moved on, but he, Oscar has to obviously be very careful that Lando doesn't destroy his career, and Lando ends up having a a, a max effect uh, um, with his teammates and the performance Lando's delivering. Well, this is it, and um, you know, no, we talked about Logan Sargent obviously having issues with his preparation, but he's going to come into next season more prepared than Oscar Piastri will. I mean, it's not a case of will Oscar be able to catch up and do more work than Logan. It's just a fact of time. You know, Logan's been with the Williams team for a long time now. He's been able to prepare. Yes, Oscar's been with the Alpine team, but you mentioned, Lee, that six-month period where he's not been able to even turn a wheel in a simulator, let alone a real-life Formula One car. There's only so much that you can do. I suppose, in a way... It's better, according to Andrew Seidel, to get Piastri in six weeks earlier than they would have expected in January 1st. So, you know, he won't be on the back foot as much as he would have been on the 1st of Jan. But you made a good point of how Ricardo struggled to catch up with Lando Norris. He never really settled in. You could argue Monza was probably the only exception in 2021. Even then, if they let them race, Lando looked like he might have got the win off of him. So, you know, Ricardo before, when he went to McLaren... And Renault at the time, they knew that he was joining McLaren as early as pre-season testing the season before when Ferrari announced that Vettel was not staying with the team. They signed signs. Ricardo went to McLaren to replace signs. So the whole season um, and the postseason in that year, Ricardo was stuck before January 1st, before he could do anything with McLaren. So and we saw how important it can be to have that preparation. And because Oscar Piastri, granted, will have a little bit more than Ricardo, it does show how important it is when you have literally next to no time to get used to a new team. Yeah, man, especially when you're walking into a team that was already established um, with a, a number one. Obviously, some drivers rise to the challenge. Um, I'm going off top um, team topic a bit, but when Carlos joined Ferrari, it was very much Charles' team. And Carlos is, right, he's not, he hasn't become number one, but he took the fight to Charles. And they're, you, give or take, they're pretty equal in performance and what they bring to the team, yes, Charles has had more points and had more and race wins and poles, but they're very close to the performance. And that's what Oscar needs to do, obviously. Uh, if McLaren win races, then great, but it needs to be a lot closer to Lando than Daniel was. And it's very much the same with Logan and Nicholas is that um, Oscar needs to be delivering better performances than Daniel. Otherwise, maybe he will be joining Alpine in two years as their third driver. Yeah, and, and that's a good point because, um, you know, with Ferrari, obviously Carlos Sainz was given ample time after he left McLaren to help prepare with Ferrari to a degree, of course, uh, running some older cars and getting up to speed with things. And it did take him a little while, but he was fairly quick from the get-go. He seemed to cl- acclimatise fairly well, uh, whereas Ricardo, by comparison, really, really struggled. And we never really saw him 
fully comfortable in that McLaren. You know, we often heard him complaining about technical issues, stuff he just wasn't able to do that Norris did, workarounds, etc., etc. It can really plague even the best drivers. And Oscar Piastri, of course, a driver I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do. Very exciting young talent, probably one of the best talents to come into the sport since probably George Russell and Norris a few years before him. And um, so... Hopefully he will go well, but um, I think Andrew Seidel, he was talking about trying to prepare him as best as possible to make the Bahrain race next year not feel like his first ever F1 race. I think it's practically impossible really to get that. I think we may have to wait half a season before we see what Oscar can really do, but there's plenty of pace there and uh, I think he was only a tenth of a second off Lando Norris's ultimate time. So naturally he's pretty quick already. Um, It might just be around Abu Dhabi, which isn't the best barometer because the conditions they were racing in weren't the same as what we were getting in the, the actual race and the 2023 tyre test. There's obviously caveats there. So you can only take it for face value. But um, we'll have to wait and see, really, with Oscar Piastri, don't we? Yeah, it's a very much wait and see. And as you said, it's going to be a wait and see several months down the line, the same as uh, with Logan. Yeah, very much so. Um, another driver to talk about, the last of the new drivers, uh, Nico Hulkenberg joining the Haas team, replacing Mick Schumacher for next season. 19th fastest, 110 laps on the board. Questions were raised regarding how he'd cope physically. He seemed to cope better than expected, according to his own words. Obviously, that's something he's going to have to work on over the winter break because these cars are a lot bigger. They're required to be a lot more physically capable. He had a few outings earlier this season in the Aston Martin, replacing Seb Vettel for the first two rounds of the season. So he's no stranger to the new cars. Um... Had an interesting stop in the session, Lee. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, Apparently there was a sensor suggesting a power unit failure, which caused him to stop in the middle sector. But he was recovered, and apparently this never triggered a yellow or red flag. So I have no idea how he's managed this, but it clearly seems that Haas have got the right man because he's experienced in being able to park a car without it causing any problems. Well, uh, it's already an improvement over a Mick, isn't it? <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, obviously, they didn't sign Hulkenberg on, on that level of experience, but it's always nice to know you've got a guy that knows where to park here without causing any detriment. Although, perhaps, uh, if Haas need a cheeky safety car here, then maybe Hulkenberg can help him out. Yeah, well, I, all I meant is uh, that if, if Mick caused a, um, an incident, it was normally a, a red flag or a safety car. So the fact that Nico could do it without any flag is a... Uh, Oh, he's testing to his skill set or the negligence of the the FIA at the time that he didn't notice the car had boxed up, which wouldn't be a surprise either with the, the FIA recently. So um, I'm not going to take anything away from Nico on that one, but there's here's hope that Haas gets a podium next year. Uh, be it Nico, come on. <laughs> well, we get a podium. <laughs> you never ever know. We've seen some stranger things this year and if Magnussen's return is anything to go by, then who knows a Hulkenberg of all the teams for him to get a podium in. It turns out it'd be Haas. That would be yeah. some story. I mean, we joke about this, but, um, you know, we mentioned the physicality side of it. This is something that Holkenberg now in his mid-30s, it's obviously going to be hard for him to achieve and maintain compared to some of his younger counterparts. But in terms of getting used to a new team, new personnel, a new way of working and acclimatising to a Formula 1 car, of all the new drivers out there, perhaps with the exception of Fernando Alonso, Holkenberg is probably not going to have to worry about this young this test in the same way that perhaps the likes of Piastri, Sargent, Gasly, and even Nick DeVries would have done. No, right. He's he's been the ultimate super sub in the last couple of years, hasn't he? In the performance he's brought, and he's been the go-to man for multiple teams when they need to step in. 
Um, obviously, since he lost his seat, he hasn't let himself go physically because he was always trying to get back in. He was always um, being that super sub. All right, yes, being in a Formula One car and doing exercises aren't the same, but he was he's been kept he's close enough that I'm sure he can get back into his fitness that is required uh, quick enough that it won't impact his performance. Yeah, well, he was certainly no stranger to a pastry of two. I remember no, when uh, the old super sub rumours were doing the rounds and Hulkenberg sitting there in a cafe enjoying a nice coffee and a croissant. And uh, yeah, I mean, you never know. He's enjoying life, really, quite frankly. But obviously, now that he's coming back to F1 full time, he's going to have to put in the uh, hard yards this winter in order to be physically ready. But I'm pretty sure he'll be fine, really. Uh, he's an experienced driver, which is obviously a reason why House went for him. But he also knows what that includes physically exercising, diet, um, and demands of how to work with a team because he's been with multiple different teams. So he obviously knows how to bring himself into a new team and settle in uh, easy enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a quick word on some of the other young drivers. We had Frederick Vesti doing some runs for Mercedes. Um, we also had Jack Doohan doing for Alpine, Liam Lawson at Red Bull. Uh, who else we have? Teo Porcher also did some runs for Alfa Romeo and uh, Fittipaldi for Haas as well. So um, a lot of experience for some of the young drivers out there. Some good stuff. A lot of them all competing in F2 next season. So good to see. Uh, one team that was doing the rounds, uh, Mercedes, obviously wasn't anything spectacular in terms of times, but not that really it really matters. It's usually each of their own regarding the programs. And... Um, of all the happy drivers that we had, Lee, uh, there was obviously one notable driver that wasn't the happiest compared to the others. Probably no prizes for guessing who this driver was, Lee. Lewis? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sir Lewis Hamilton. Now, now of course, I'm not, not suggesting that Sir Lewis Hamilton was grumpy or anything like that. Far from it. But for anyone that knows Sir Lewis Hamilton in his F1 career knows that he does not like doing testing. And he does not like driving this W13. I mean, it was Sunday on Sunday after the race saying, I'm so happy that I'll never have to drive this car again after Tuesday when he does his postseason test. And now he's done that. So uh, obviously Hamilton was not going to be happy on Tuesday, having to get back in this car one more time. He's now done that. So a sigh of relief, I'm sure, was very heavily enjoyed by Sir Lewis and the rest of the Mercedes team, mind you. I think I heard Toto Wolff saying that he was going to put the W13 on display outside the factory in Brackley just as a reminder of how difficult times can get in Formula One for his team and a little bit of motivation to try and not go back and create something quite as difficult and as um, not necessarily uncompetitive, but relative to the top teams as the W13 has been. almost feel a little bit sad for them in a way that W13 got a bit of harsh criticism. It, it tried. It's a race winner. Got to give us some credit. It'd be a looming threat outside the factory. Don't mess up again or we get fired. <laughs> That's it. Thinking <laughs> See that, it every day. <laughs> yeah, thinking that we're infallible and that we keep winning. Well, there's no guarantee and this is the proof right there. But um, yeah, I mean, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm sure Sir Lewis wouldn't have been happy about uh, driving on Tuesday after Sunday evening, but um, he's now got it over and done with. Hopefully the W14 is going to be a much better car for him. And given that, obviously, he's looking at potentially renewing his contract with the team, that could go a long way to convincing him to stick in around. Uh, quick talk about tyres, Lee. Everyone's favourite to topic, the tyres. Technically, one of the most important things in a Formula 1 car. Uh, Rumours that Pirelli are going to make the 2023 tyres better with front-end grip. But there's a little concern from Pirelli because they may dilute this a little bit um, because they're worried that the teams may be pursuing 
improve front uh, grip with their new cars uh, to prevent understeer. I think a lot of people saying the 2022 tyres were quite understeery, so they obviously had to combat that. But there's a little bit of a dilemma with Pirelli where they're trying to make sure they don't make it too much better with these new tyres out of fears that the tyres may become too oversteery. Well, I mean, that's part of the challenge, isn't it? They're, as a, they, they should provide the tyres that, that work and then obviously the teams do it. If the teams that overdrive it, then they have to rectify their their work. That's the part of the, the work the the teams have to do. I don't think Pirelli should limit themselves personally what they deliver. It's a bog standard part, so to speak. So if teams start complaining it's oversteery, then dial back your um, your wing and the the obviously the performance delivered to the front end of the car. It's uh, I think they Pirelli should obviously focus on the what they need to do for the for the tires and the teams have to live with it. Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, you, you get these tyre tests. The teams, when Pirelli was saying that they want to improve the front grip with these tyres, that's what they're going for. And the drivers are sort of like going, well, it's sort of not really doing what I hope it would do or it's not really achieving that. You kind of got to remember that they're kind of making these tyres with the mindset that where the teams are going to be, you know, they're predicting how much better these cars are going to be in 2023. And if you know, the one constant is teams complaining about understeer with these modern tyres. They're obviously going to want to compensate with that by making their tires be- uh, cars better at the front. And if they do that and the tyres are also better at the front, you end up creating that effect where it becomes oversteery. And then the guys are complaining that they've made the tyres too good in that regard. So they're going to dilute this down a little bit, apparently. So we'll have to wait and see how it goes. But it's always been the way with new tyres in these tyre tests. The drivers are always complaining. And then when you come to the actual season, they just got to get on with it, really, haven't they? Yeah, well, I mean, you speak to any drivers; they all, they all want like the they w- they would love to go back to the days of um, the tire wars, where the tires would go three hundred laps without any drop in performance and <laughs> just keep going, 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 going. But obviously, that's not what Pirelli have been signed up to do, um, and the drivers have to accept that they're not going to get the tires as. That they would love to have and they are, they have to adapt and drive to what is delivered in my opinion i mean as a fan do you reckon that would improve the show having a bit of a tire war because i know the drivers would love that because they can have the manufacturers working towards their better ends i mean we saw bridgestone with ferrari they had jordan and midland um on their books as well but they always made their tires suitable for the ferraris they didn't really care for the other teams whereas michelin was obviously preparing for Renault, Williams, McLaren, and BAR, Honda, etc., etc. So it's a bit different. Do you think that having a tyre war would benefit the F1 show? Uh, personally, I don't think a tyre war would benefit um, the Formula One um, at all. It's you'll get situations similar to that preferential treatment, which is, defeats the point of what would be a bog standard part. A tyre is a tyre for one team and for the other. Um, having it developed for just one team, it's a especially in this cost cap era um i don't think it's the expenditure that formula one needs um but at the same time i I do think drivers obviously they'll love to have a perfect tire but they should just drive with what they've got and stop being uh so whiny regarding that they want that perfect tire which formula one doesn't want to deliver a perfect tire because that's not what pirelli have been tasked to do they've been tired obviously tires that provide some level of degradation but not a thermal degradation that doesn't lose physical structure and and it, it slows down over laps but provides this level of grip and it's then survives level of downfall and it's all those variables that probably have to work with and the drivers saying oh it's not giving me enough grip well probably know what they're doing they're the professionals and that's what they're paid to do 
So you'd like to think that the they provide what they um, the best they can with the the known variables that they are at the moment, especially as you said, forecasting. And Formula One moves at such a rapid pace that they could undershoot or overshoot massively. Yeah, I mean, they've been with the sport for well over a decade now and they seem yeah. to know what they're doing. And and to be fair to Pirelli, you know, m- more often than not, when they have been faced with these kind of challenges, they have delivered on what F1 has asked of them. You know, whether the teams dilute the effect of their tyres one way or the other to suit their own ends, it's always going to be a factor. Not something yeah. you can always predict for. You can only make your best guess and they know what they're doing. So I think sometimes you just got to really get on with it, quite frankly. I like the idea of a tyre war. But because it, it creates the intrigue between different teams over, you know, which teams do you favour, which facets, because you can only deliver so much. Uh, like we explained before with the battle between Bridgestone and Michelin, they pretty much pied off Jordan and Midland just to run tyres that suited Ferrari and it compromised those teams because they couldn't go in the direction they wanted to on design because they had tyres that weren't made for them and they never were going to be made for them for obvious reasons. But then obviously... With tyres, you always want it to be a spec standard part. You don't want anyone to have any advantages with certain tyres rather than others. You'd rather just see how everybody copes with the same equipment, really. And that's kind of what people have been asking for, a little bit more standardisation in F1 to level the playing field a little bit. Let's move on now, now that we've talked about the postseason test. Let's talk about some other news. Uh, the Chinese Grand Prix. Now, we spoke about this in the past. Will it be on the calendar? Won't it be on the calendar for 2023? Obviously, it has a huge upside in marketing potential in that part of the world and with a driver like Zhou Guan Yu hoping to drive at his home race at some point, becoming the first Chinese driver to do so. It has huge ramifications on potentially his future in the sport as well. As it stands right now, Lee, whilst it's not officially confirmed, it doesn't look good for the Chinese Grand Prix. Now, it was meant to be on the calendar on the 16th of April 2023. Currently, under the current situation with the pandemic, there's zero COVID policy in the country has led F1 to potentially conclude that the race may not be able to go to go ahead. There have been fears that drivers and teams could be restricted from leaving the country if they've caught COVID whilst being there. The current latest rules from China demand that anyone found with a virus must spend five days at an isolation centre plus three additional days isolating at home. F1 chairman and CEO Stefano Domenicali has not yet officially called the race off, but the decision is considered an inevitability, although F1 has not yet commented on this situation officially. I mean, for me, it doesn't look good right now. And whilst there's no confirmation, that's probably more likely because there's no current plan in place to either replace the event or to reshuffle the calendar to accommodate for that four-week gap that we would get between Melbourne and Baku that China would leave behind if it was removed from the calendar. Yeah, I've been saying for months that I fully expect the Chinese Grand Prix to be cancelled. Um, the Chinese government have made it very clear that they're sticking to their zero-covid policy. That's the way to go. The whole world has got it wrong um, regarding how to handle COVID. zero-covid is best. Um, problem with that is when there is any outbreak, everything shuts down in that localised area. Um, so that is a risk in itself. Um, just imagine if they went to the, the circuit and then there was a mandatory lockdown and all the teams got stuck in China. I mean, that's great. Oh, I say great. That's I mean, that's with sarcastic uh, um, input there. That yeah. Oh, the next few races are, are, are stuck. Um, are cancelled because all the Formula One teams are now stuck in China for the next month and a half because of the lockdown. How, how interesting that would be for the sport. Eh? Um, it's, I think it's a risk that the team 
the Formula One can't take regarding that. Um, but yeah, they need to do something because they have a, an early spring um, break after the first race. You might as well shut the factories for two weeks and <laughs> treat it like the summer break if you're going to have a month gap. They need to do something with rejiggling the calendar, which I don't know if they're going to do. I know I think Azerbaijan's the next the next race. Yeah, supposed to be after, and they're not too keen on moving. No, um, I'm not sure why though, because that race is meant to be on the 30th of April. From what I've heard, F1 want them to move it to the 23rd, just a week forward. They've been quite reluctant to do that. They're also in negotiations over a contract extension for the next 10 years. So we're going to get a huge deal for that, possibly like Bahrain and Saudi and Jeddah. Um, and, and it's one of the largest p- payers of a fee for hosting the event. So obviously they're going to be quite in a, in a quite healthy position in terms of their negotiations for that. So they have been quite reluctant. So it's going to create a bit of a void almost where, yeah. and I don't remember seeing any plans for F1 to move a race in that slot as a last resort. I know people say, oh, well, there's other races that missed out. They might be able to get them on. Kyle Army was a race in South Africa that people would love to have seen on. I think F1 stances right now, if we don't have a Chinese Grand Prix, there won't be a race in that slot unless Baku gets moved forward a week. Uh, just bring back uh, Kuala Lumpur racing Malaysia. There, I mean, it's it's on the oh, way from Australia to, to go back Azerbaijan. I mean, that's a perfect uh, fit, but I know that won't happen. That's just me wishing. <laughs> it's just me wishing as well. I always forget sometimes, and then I think back and I think that was such a good circuit. Loved Kuala Lumpur Malaysia. Really should bring it back, but. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. I'm sure there are mitigating circumstances like money and other things like that. They're obviously a factor these days in Formula One when a lot of the revenue being chased is through circuit fees, etc. And if you've got loads of venues wanting to host races, of course, you're going to demand as much money as you can as an organization to get a return on it. So it is an interesting one. Um, I, I did speak to an F1 journalist the other day about this and they were saying to me, um, that from what they've heard from their source in China, that whilst the race at this point, F1 said it's too soon to say that it's been cancelled, the the hope is that they can get the race to go ahead. So we'll have to watch this space on this one. It will be a shame if for another year we won't have a Chinese race. It, as I said, we haven't had a race there since 2019 before the pandemic began. And um, it is quite telling right now that we're still in this position where it's not looking very good for that venue, especially considering how important a signing like Zhou Guan Yu was in the F1 market to have races in China. We were talking about multiple races happening there, and at the moment, we haven't even got one. So it is a bit of a concern. Yeah, it was very much a concern, especially, as you said, with, with Zhou being that, right, drawing for his skill, but also there's the inevitability of the, the, the money potential and the marketability of the driver in the Chinese market, especially for Alfa Romeo um, having any Chinese sponsors, et cetera, if they can get them. Um, so it obviously would be a shame for him if he doesn't get his home race, but I just don't think it's, it's going to happen for a, a while, unfortunately. Yeah, I very much agree with you. Um, there's some news on some sprint race venues. Again, this has not been confirmed, but there has been a published list that's been doing the rounds online regarding sprint venues on a, f- on a few quite reputable sources, incredible sources, it must be said. Um, I got this list from the BBC, who are usually pretty much on the money with Andrew Benson's columns, one of the top F1 journalists. And he was quoted in the article saying that the six venues potentially to be announced for sprint races were Azerbaijan, Austria, Belgium, Qatar, US in Austin and Brazil. 
looking at that list, Lee, I mean, the obvious one, Brazil, we obviously has to be on the sprint uh, races for 2023. It's pretty much the mecca of sprint racing from F1 so far. Austria was also a decent race, but we've got Azerbaijan, Belgium, Qatar and Austin as well. I mean, what do you make of those other races? Uh, do you reckon, I mean, we don't know much about Qatar, obviously, because we haven't been there yet because it's a new circuit. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, my thoughts is, oh, Azerbaijan as a sprint race, I mean, that's going to be tasty. The amount of accidents that Azerbaijan is <laughs> a, a race. I mean, will we actually have a safety car in a, a sprint race? That's going to be... Have we had a safety car in a sprint race before? I don't think we have, have we? I don't think we have. No. Um, I mean, unless we're wrong, let us know in the comments if we are, because, we, you know, we're not the most credible F1 sources. We do get things wrong more often than not. But, uh, yeah, let us know, guys. Azerbaijan generates a lot of safety cars. So, I mean, that could be an interesting sprint race, <laughs> the amount of uh, accidents that um, Azerbaijan seems to cause. Um, not because of the circuit, it's just because, obviously, it's a street circuit and... It's very fast street circuit. Um, so that is interesting. Um, Spa in itself. Um, it's interesting having a spin race, but Spa is a very long track. I love the circuit, but a sprint race, I mean, you're going to get like four laps or something. I'm only just saying, I don't know it's going to It's going to be a one lap race. This is that long. This is like literally the run down to uh, Oruj and Radion and then the Kemmel straight and then whoever gets their first wins pretty much because that's the same distance covered. But uh, trying to think at the top of my head, what would be a third of 44 laps, Lee? What would it be? Mathematicians out there, about 14, 15 laps? Yeah, okay. So it's not as little as uh, I was saying, but it's still, it still does seem a bit short, but that's obviously because Spa is one of the longest circuits on the, the calendar. Um I mean, it could, but, uh, be, it could be a race that has one mandatory pit stop in there. Well, not mandatory. Obviously, there are no mandatory pit, pit stops in sprint races. But um, given the nature of the circuit, you know, everyone's going to be on the mediums anyway. Maybe you might get some people on the hards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be. I think it'll be great. I love. I love Spa. It's a when we have a full race, it's very enjoyable to watch. Mm. Um, but the yeah, it's just things it would just be a very little laps like four 12 13 14 laps true true unless it it's, rains uh, and we only get two laps <laughs> so uh we'll have to wait and see but no i i like that belgium's included on this list though oh, it's been racing the rain oh that'd be interesting oh yeah well we ha we well we sort of semi had one with um imola this season where it was a bit damp and it went yeah, wet to dry but, but it I mean, wasn't a full spa. wet one yeah i know it's spa it's quite unique i mean it starts in the dry it rains. They have to pit for wet. By the time they get around the circuit, it's dry again, and it's monsoon. I mean, and everything fourteen else. laps with two pit stops. Come on, this would be a great sprint race. <laughs> I think that's where the logic has gone because they were doing a lot of research into what tracks potentially will serve up the best sprint races. I mean, Austria's been pretty decent, so that was a no-brainer. Brazil, obviously, Brazil yeah. was going to be on there. We know we've tried Monza; that was never going to be good. Silverstone was a bit tepid, quite frankly, compared yeah. to the main race, so we didn't enjoy that one. Um, where was the other one that we had this season? Uh, it was Imola. Imola, yeah. Imola, again, the track's probably a bit too narrow to make yeah. it work. I mean, we remembered it because Verstappen caught Leclerc and passed him, and that was quite cool at the time. But um, looking back on it, probably not the best circuit for no. sprint races in general. I, as I said, I like that Belgium's on this calendar because Belgium obviously is on there for another season. With it being a sprint venue, it may lead itself to potentially being included on the calendar for a few more years to come. So, you know, last season we were worried that we weren't going to be at Belgium again. This may be a sign that we may get more Belgian Grand Prix in the future. Um, interesting to talk about uh, sprint races. There were rumours that we were going to have a sprint race in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. 
that was planned, but the Grand Prix organizers amazingly balked at the fee being demanded for a sprint race. Now, I know a lot of uh, tags have been attributed to races in the Middle East owing to you know, the amount of money that they can normally throw at these things. So it was a bit of a surprise to hear that they didn't fancy putting up the money for a sprint race at Jeddah. I mean, that would have been quite cool, having a sprint race in Jeddah, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of action that we've had we've had in Jeddah in the, in the two years we've been there is, it would have been interesting to see, but I mean, yeah, it, it does raise eyebrows that Saudi Arabia does, or the organisation does want to pay the fees. Mm. Um which makes me wonder how much they <laughs> they're charging for a sprint race. Well, that, the, I mean, that Saudi Arabia yeah. is like, well, not the government or the country, obviously the organisation, but doesn't want to pay the fees. Oof, it's uh, it must be eye watering. It makes me want to know how much they're paying for the main race as well, because obviously this is in addition yeah. to what they're already True. paying for the main race. And uh, you know, Azerbaijan, we already mentioned they're one of the biggest fee payers already, so you know they want more action in action in Baku. I'm fine with it as long as it provides in return and uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the Qatar race does because that's a new circuit being built. So that, based on what they've been told, that might be a good idea, but then it could also be one of those venues where it's just being used as a sprint race just to help promote the new circuit, for example. I've got no qualms about Austin. I think that's going to be a good venue as well. Yeah, I think that would be good. Um, in addition to obviously what you mentioned before we came on, Lee, about the uh, trial with DRS in the sprint races, that's going to be a lap early now, isn't it? Yeah, they're they're for the all spin races they're trying to do next year. That after one lap, the DRS will be enabled. With the the idea of successful, they'll implement that as a f- every race for twenty four. Yeah, which would be interesting. I mean, because their their concern is that is it currently it's is it two laps or three laps? It's There's two three laps. laps. It's, it's so after lap two or lap okay. three, DRS is enabled yeah. after two laps. So uh, I'm but, not sure how I feel about that. Two laps, what they're thinking is after two laps, the, most drivers can establish the one, especially in the lead of the race, can establish that one second window that they don't get the attack. So the thinking is you cut in half and you will still get DRS enabled. So you've got an interesting fight for the lead of the race because that driver at the front can't break that magic one second window. Um, and so you're basically going to get a DRS, DRS train. Um, it's the only thing I can think of, especially imagine Fernando gets the into the lead not that he, he may in the Aston Martin but Fernando yeah, being, they're king on the DRS trains um, he may just hold everyone up and that'll be it but it, obviously the logic is sound that they try and make the overtaking even more um, likely to occur and make the f- fight at the front interesting with a uh, making it easier for overtakes yeah I mean I can see the logic behind the move obviously you know this season as well it's been hit even harder by the fact that you know, Verstappen and Red Bull have been so dominant that you obviously want to try and curb that as best as you can by not allowing them an extra lap to build up a one-second gap to prevent that DRS. I always think that's kind of um, an exciting thing for a race, though, with the leader. They have that jeopardy. They have to build that one-second gap to prevent their lead from being under attack. But more often than not, we do see in this modern era of F1 that if the leader can build up a few seconds on the first few laps, they usually run off and control the race. So obviously they want to pull them back. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'd like to see it in action before I make a yeah. fair verdict on it. I, I don't want to see too many aids um, affecting or hindering those that genuinely are quicker than others just for the sake of an entertaining show. I know that's kind of contrary to what people want because they just want more and more action. But I think sometimes too much intervention is not necessarily a good thing. What I would want is the cars to be on a more equal level playing field, which granted will take time 
I know a lot of people have said on social media recently they've not been happy with these new rules, that they claim that they failed in delivering that. But then my counter would be that the rules were never intended to make it closer racing in terms of the pecking order, at least straight away. That will take some time. It was never going to happen in six months or a year, but it was more focused on the racing being a lot closer in terms of following. That was the aim. Hopefully we'll get the latter part in years to come. I'm just not sure having DRS after lap one or two, whenever it's going to be, is going to be the right direction going forward. But I might be wrong. Hopefully I am. Yeah, well, maybe they just do it after the first corner and go, yeah, you get through the first oh, corner, you get DRS. Can you imagine doing it off the line? There'd be no rear downforce. You'd just have everybody sliding except for the leader because he's the only one that doesn't have a car ahead of him. So, uh, yeah, that would be quite fun. But um, you, you never know with these things. Maybe yeah. the work. I mean, we, we all said about DRS, what was that going to do? And, you know, it has been quite entertaining, although now we're trying to get rid of it. But uh, it just takes time, guys. Patience is a virtue, unfortunately. And I think with F1, it's one of those occasions where... They will figure it out. It's just not going to happen tomorrow, unfortunately. It will take a little bit of time. Um, final topic of discussion, Lee. Quick question. Do you love a conspiracy theory? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> I do, especially when it comes to F1. So let's have a little bit of fun with this one. Now, obviously, you know we have to be serious a little bit with this one, but news came out from the FIA that, um, just looking at the news article before I read it up, you can tell I'm well prepared for this one. Uh, FIA today saying um, Formula One's governing body has split with its interim secretary, General uh, Shaila Ann Rao, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, less than six months after appointing her. Rao, who joined the FIA from Mercedes in June, was at the centre of the controversy over Red Bull's breaching F1 budget cap regulations in 2021. There were accusations that she was uh, one of the people that potentially may have leaked information to the Mercedes teams around about the Singapore Grand Prix, which led to the rumours on Red Bull, which were later proven correct that they had breached the budget cap a few weeks later. An FIA statement said Rao had joined to the assistant new president Mohammed bin Salayam in his transition period as a new FIA uh, president. It said she was leaving because this period is now coming to an end and sources close to Rao had told BBC, this is the source I'm quoting from, that the decision to leave was her own. She resigned because the FIA is going through a reorganisation process and she felt that there would not be a job in which she was interested at the end of it and she will leave her role at the FIA at the end of November. Quite an interesting story, Lee, because as already mentioned, you know, uh, it was rumoured and uh, accused at times by some parties that Shyla was um, involved in the budget cap situation and because of her close ties to Mercedes that there was potential to still have links between the two where certain information may have passed between those parties. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what happened. This is where the conspiracy comes in. And in a way, Lee, it kind of is a little bit interesting that as soon as the season is over, she leaves her post. Now, people will say, oh, she's interim. It was always going to happen. It was never a permanent thing. But the timing is rather interesting to feed a conspiracy like this. Yeah, the timing is definitely interesting, um, but maybe at the same time, the, the obviously the FIA did some investigations regarding any potential leaks. Um, maybe they found some, maybe they didn't, but maybe they they had spoken to her regarding it, uh, their suspicions or no suspicions, whatever. But maybe the FIA didn't want to have, bring any attention upon itself. Or when they're in the, it's in the season, why are all the media's at the Grand Prix? Um, take away um, 
attention from the championship itself um, or take away attention away from Red Bull with the, the bad press they've had. They didn't want the bad press shifted to them. Um, so maybe it's just like, we do, at the end of the season, we announce it or you announce it or she made the decision at the end of the season for the benefit of the FA not to have that bad publicity or potential negative publicity in the middle of the season. No, that's it. And, um, you know, Mohammed bin Salayan was talking about uh, Shailaran and praised her, saying that she'd provided him with great support in respect to Formula One, always acting with professionalism and integrity. It's worth noting that, you know, when she joined the FIA in June, her previous post was a specialist advisor to Total Wolf at Mercedes. And, you know, those links at Mercedes did cause concern, not only at Red Bull, but Ferrari as well. I mean, remember at the Canadian Grand Prix when they were talking about solutions for porpoising there was mention about a i think it was a track rod that could be inserted yeah. on the floor to stabilize the car and the announcement i believe was made was on the friday evening before qualifying and you know when that was done mercedes turned up the very next day with a track rod inserted and a lot of the teams matty bonotto was one person that really was onto this claimed that it was impossible to have such a track rod produced and ready in time within 24 hours or so. You said it was physically impossible. And his only suggestion would be that perhaps certain information was fed to Mercedes in advance of this announcement, which gave him the time. Now, look, I'm not suggesting or denying that these things happen. This is what has been reported in the past, and this is what's been said in the past. And I suppose it kind of feeds into this conspiracy theory, if you like. Again, not suggesting that that is what happened. It's just what's been going around, what's been said. And um, it is quite an interesting talking point because, of course, Lee, with these connections and Red Bull have been very adamant that these connections were still existing, despite the fact that she's meant to have an impartial role. And it kind of feeds into all this stuff about team personnel or staff going from the FIA to certain teams before an appropriate gardening period that we often hear about has been honoured and vice versa as well. We saw that a few times with certain personnel. Ferrari have been involved in it. Red Bull as well also been part of that. It kind of creates that controversy in a way where if she, you know, she goes in the manner in which she has done and resigned, Red Bull may be asking the question, well, that was a sudden exit. Why has she gone all of a sudden after everything that's happened this year? Rather appropriate timing at the end of the season that she's chosen to leave. And um, and then in addition to that, you know, people have always been questioned what the FIA have been saying. They never trusted them after, especially what happened last year in Abu Dhabi. Why would people all of a sudden trust um, trust them now? Yeah, and even before last year, there's been um, cover-ups and things like that. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if there has been some something going on behind closed doors. Um, but as I said, I, I think any any announcement, if there was some, uh, leaking or not, was to avoid any bad press in, in the middle of the season with the press being at the venue. Um, but the in itself, yeah, I can understand Rebel's suspicions, but maybe at Canada, um, Mercedes just going, oh, we'll really love if we had a, 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 a another track rod to just minimise the floor. Should we just design <laughs> one just in case something happens? Oh, it's happened. Oh, great. Let's get it here. We've designed that earlier just because we really need it. <laughs> well, this is it. Yeah, it's completely it? yeah. innocent. <laughs> well, I mean, well, we don't know, do we? I mean, no, this, is, no, this, is, this is where it all becomes quite interesting. And, uh, you know, look, People can make their own conclusions on stories like this. We saw a lot of this today. There are a lot of people. I think I saw a lot of Mercedes and and Sir Lewis Hamilton fans on social media saying that, oh, you know, she was interim. She was always going to leave. This isn't a conspiracy 
Um, there's been no foul play here between this member of the FIA and the Mercedes team or stuff like that. Um, but then, as I said, you know, when I mentioned already that, you know, people have not been trusting what the FIA have been saying, there's always been stuff going or read between the lines. It would have been those same group of people that would have been very distrustful of the FIA after what happened in Abu Dhabi last year, after the cost cap punishments and stuff with Red Bull this season. Again, it all these different angles, they kind of feed into this. Now, look, I know it sounds like I'm going at this where I'm trying to say it suggests that something is happening here that shouldn't be. I just want to put on the record that that's not what I'm suggesting here. I'm just literally relaying all the information that we've had this season and this story and the connections that may or may not exist. But I'm going to leave that up to you guys to determine how you see this because it's an interesting story. I don't think it's one that's going to go away. I've got a funny feeling Red Bull may follow up on this or try to investigate things in their own minds and maybe Ferrari and some of the other teams may decide to do so as well I mean for example Lee you know just entertaining a possible scenario not necessarily an accurate one but possible nonetheless um you know if the FIA came out and said oh owing to the situation regarding the leaks regarding the budget cap situation in Singapore um if Shyla was the one that had leaked the information to Mercedes, which allowed Toto Wolff and even Matty Bonotto when they were discussing stuff with each other in the paddock, because we saw a lot of those pictures as well. So it could be that Toto may have fed that info to Mattia at Ferrari, that they would have wanted to get rid of her. And this is the way that they put the article out to suggest that she'd chosen to resign. She's leaving with full integrity and support of us. They're not going to openly admit if she was the one that leaked the info that she, that she did that because Red Bull would go crazy. Yeah, I mean, the FIA could just go, we've come to an undisclosed agreement that we're not going to publicise. <laughs> That's it with the Ferrari engines. That's they were made yeah. a secret. Shush. <laughs> That's it. Well, we still haven't seen that one, have we? So no. we, we can always conspire with that. I, I guess what I'm saying, guys, is like, you know, it's always fun sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm not conspiracy theorist and, you know, contrary to what I've been saying in the last 10 minutes or so, um, it's always fun to think about. It's one of those I don't think we're ever going to get the answer to. But again, it does have the depths of the 2019 Ferrari engine saga and obviously the true nature of Red Bull and, and the budget cap and other, other things as well. I mean, we people have listed on this show how many different controversies and how many things that have swept under the carpet or truths that haven't been revealed and stuff like that, which could obviously have ramifications if they came to light. All of that and the above. So have a little bit of fun with that if you like. Have a think about what you think may have gone down or may not have gone down um, and let us know your thoughts in the comments as well but of course do keep it respectful we're only just reporting on information that's been relayed to us via an, a myriad source um, you know so yeah I think we'll probably just leave it there unless there's anything you wanted to add in Lee before we sign off no no that's uh, that's good with me thank you yeah but uh, obviously we really that was a really fun discussion guys I uh, hope you enjoyed that and uh, let us know your thoughts regarding some of the new drivers in their test at Abu Dhabi who you're looking forward to seeing next season who you think are going to be good next season which drivers you think may be on the back foot next season and of course your other thoughts on the Chinese Grand Prix the sprint races and the uh, the FIA personnel change that we just went through and all the fun that we had with entertaining that particular theory but um Obviously, guys, if you enjoyed it, make sure to like the video and subscribe to the channel. It really helps us out a lot, so we'd really appreciate it if you could do so. And, of course, if you listen to us on your favourite podcasting platform, whatever that may be, please make sure, if you think we're worthy, to give us a five-star review. If you do, whether that be on Apple Podcast, do let us know. We'll see that on there. On Spotify, take a screenshot and let us know. Similar with other platforms, 
where you can't leave a written review because we'd love to give you a shout out. But of course, if you just give us the five stars and we don't see who's done it, we can't really do that, unfortunately. So please make sure that you let us know. But until next time, guys, we'll be back next week with our 2022 season review. Courtney will be rejoining us after that one. After missing this one, I should say, because uh, he's not been too well. So hopefully he gets well soon. Lee, you're going to be back with us for that one. And we're going to have a bit of fun with that one because we're going to be looking at our predictions earlier in the year to see how well we did. From what I remember, probably not very. So it's no. probably going to be quite fun. Um, but until next time, guys, thanks for tuning in. Please stay safe. Hope that you are enjoying the winter break as best you can. But until next time, we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And remember, if you're not first you're probably DNF1. Sports Social Podcast Network.